2: Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news, if anyone watches the evening news anymore, has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
4: I think you probably mean the 24-7 news. And I'm Vivi Ganesanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And um, this weather has been really fun lately, right, Whit, here in the Midwest?
2: (laughs) That is one thing I'm not watching the news about. I'd maybe check an app occasionally and see, like, oh, yes, it's freezing cold and has been forever. Um, I'm assuming it's the same in the ice kingdom of Minneapolis.
4: Yeah, uh, it's been pretty solidly negative here for a while. And uh, how has this been affecting Carla Lulu Levy Terrell?
2: This is <laughs> our our little doggie that we got back in April who goes by Lulu for short, and she is fine. She is, I look, I figured out why she's partly white I mean, she blends in really well. You know, she has this very snowy coat that's mixed with brown. And she has these feathers that come off the back of her legs that make her sort of blend into the snow. It's very beautiful. (laughs) She loves it. She's, you know, she's eating a lot of frozen squirrels. How's Kunju?
4: Kunju workman Ganeshananthin is not really in favor of the bitter cold. She likes to roll around in the snow. Um, she does find a rabbit turd that intrigues her every once in a while. Um, this is your dog, I'm saying. This is, yes. You have to say it's I should a say dog. that this is, okay. this is my pandemic puppy. And I will say that I have now succeeded in getting Whitney to promote our podcast using our dogs, which has been an ambition See? of mine since basically we got them at around the same time um is kunju wearing those booties kunju is wearing kunju has a snowsuit that makes her look like a tiny nascar driver and then she has these like little orange booties that look like tiny balloons that go in her paws and if you don't put them on her little paws freeze and then she like limps around with her tiny anyway she's a miniature poodle mix um and yeah she's it's been a struggle to like get her to go outside and you know She gets frostbite. I get frostbite. Um, Lulu limps around too. You got to just push through it. Oh my God. Just keep going. You're from the Midwest and I've immigrated (laughs) to the Midwest and I am not born to this stoicism. She comes home with
2: huge, like gnarly, like clumps of snow between her, her, her fingers and she just chews them out and then has her breakfast. It's all good.
4: Oh my God. Do you have the musher's wax? That thing that you put on like horse hooves or dog paws? Never even to, heard of that. To prevent okay, we'll take we'll take this offline anyway. <laughs> well anyway, <laughs> there
2: was a moment there when we've been having it's slightly better today. There was a moment, however, when we were having these repeated gray days with temperature at minus two and the feels like temperature at minus twenty, where we just thought, how much more of this are we gonna have to take? We were having rolling blackouts, we had a riot in the Capitol, there's this freaking
4: pandemic. I mean, come on. And that is why we've decided to talk about someplace other than the United States. And so in today's episode, we'll explore how COVID has impacted South Asia. are getting the hell out of here. And Africa. Yes, let us talk about other places. So later in this episode, we'll be talking to Bindu Shajan Perapadan of The Hindu and Suhasani Raj of The New York Times, who'll talk to us about the pandemic in India. But first, we're lucky to be joined by Uzuddinma Iwala. Uza is the author of the novels Beasts of No Nation, which has been adapted into a major motion picture and, more recently, Speak No Evil. His writing has appeared in the New York Times and Vanity Fair, and he's also the CEO of the Africa Center. He's a graduate of Harvard College and the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Today, we're excited to talk about his 2012 nonfiction book, Our Kind of People, A Continent's Challenge, A Country's Hope, and what the progression of AIDS in Africa, and specifically Uza's native Nigeria, can tell us about the region's response to COVID-19 now. Uza, I'm so glad you could join us. Welcome to the show.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: Welcome and thanks for being here. Uh, Our Kind of People opens with the story of Jerome, a young man with money who enjoys the pleasures that Abuja, uh, an, at the time a new up-and-coming city, has to offer. Jerome is someone Quote, whom everyone knows, but no one knows much about, including his real name. One of those guys who are so public that for the world, they cease to have a private inner life. He's kind of a partier. Um, he charms women at bars, and, and then he meets a young woman named Agatha. They settle down. He commits to her. They get married. They start a family. But when Agatha falls sick, Jerome keeps it a secret and does not let her go out in public or see a doctor. She ultimately dies. And then we get this passage that introduces the main theme of your book. I wondered if you could read to us from that. Sure.
5: Something wasn't right with Jerome, and it wasn't just the news that his wife had died. Of course that would change any man, but Jerome's condition was something more than grief. It wasn't odd that he hadn't been out to drink or party in some time. His friends assumed he was mourning his wife, but he'd even stopped going to work. He stayed at home alone. Those who knew him well saw the changes the most. There was Jerome emaciated with sunken eyes and skin that seemed to relinquish yet another shade of brown with each day. Every time he wanted to pass gas, he soiled himself. He didn't want to be seen in public, him, Jerome, a whole Jerome, reduced and continuously reducing. They begged him to go to the hospital. They begged him to submit himself for blood tests so doctors might determine the cause, beyond bad luck of losing his wife and child. At Asokoro General Hospital, a collection of low-lying buildings in the center of the city, they drew his blood and admitted him to the wards. The doctor was a young man, He entered the room with a worried look and drew in a long, slow breath. Who is this person, Jerome, the doctor asked. One of them answered, it is my brother, my good friend from the same side. The doctor spoke again and slowly, wow, okay. There's nothing to hide from you here. Before we hide it, now we don't hide anything. Your friend has a bad, deadly disease and then he allowed it to go far, to destroy many things in his body. He has this new reigning disease, HIV and AIDS, and it's gone far now, to the extent that the blood system is now weak. So there's nothing we can do. If you keep moving him from hospital to hospital, it's just a waste of funds. So Jerome's friends did the only thing they could do. They took him back to Cross River, to his village. That's where he gave up. That's how Jerome passed on. His baby boy was gone. His wife was gone. He too was now gone, and somewhere out there, his daughter is left behind to grow up without parents. You know this story. You've heard it many times before. This is the story of HIV AIDS in Africa, or is it?
4: Thank you so much. Uh, So the first line of the book is, you know, this story, which sets up an expectation for uh, Western readers, at least, who already have their own ideas or assumptions about the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And then you subvert that expectation by asking the reader, or is it, which forces me to ask, you know, how much do I really know? What am I assuming? So I assume that 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 setup was intentional. And can you talk a little bit about setting things up that way?
5: So I started writing this book when I was uh, in—I think it was in the—in the, in the mid 2000s, um, when I was doing a lot of work on health policy. And in many ways, it was written not just to talk about HIV/AIDS, but to talk about the way that people speak about, you know, sickness, illness, healthcare issues, disease on the continent of Africa and the various countries. And you know, I think that there is, uh, and there still is, a little bit like a narrative about about uh, communicable disease and about these things uh, in Africa, where you know it is uh, no healthcare infrastructure. Everybody's getting sick. Everybody's going to die. And you know it's hard to 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 deal with that narrative because you know, like like all of these things, there is some truth to it, right? There is some truth to the lack of healthcare infrastructure. In fact, there's a great amount of truth to the lack of healthcare infrastructure. You know, there is there is you do have to contend with that, but at the same time, there is a Uh, The narrative ends up, you know, especially in cases and very tragically where it's where, where people are trying to use it to help people, it ends up actually dehumanizing and then causing people to lose interest in actually solving the problems, partly because it doesn't really take a look at why the situation is the way it is. It just takes a look at, you know, what people see immediately in front of them or what they want to see in front of them. And so writing about HIV in Nigeria, or the, the, the HIV and AIDS epidemic in Nigeria at that time was really a way of saying, there is what you see, there are the narratives that you have been conditioned or programmed to or, or want to believe. And then there's a much more complex understanding of the situation that is, is, um, is actually uh, the people who are living it, living this, this epidemic, you know, at the present actually have of the situation that they're in. And that's what I kind of wanted to play with.
4: And so another thing that we could talk about, you know, there, Jerome chooses not to go to the hospital, speaking of infrastructure and, and how people react to it. I can understand that fear. You know, I think we're seeing it now in some cases with COVID, um, you know, the apprehension to admit that something is wrong and not wanting to face it, wondering what's on the other end when you go in. Uh, could you talk a little bit about Jerome making that choice?
5: Again, I think every, every, every society or every culture has a way that they deal with disease, um, the way that they deal with with health and, and issues around health you know and every individual also has that that sort of like their own way of dealing with it some people choose denial some people you know are, are hypochondriac some people you know what you you have the whole range of ways that people deal with with illness and disease um, and I think in this particular case which was narrated to me by somebody very close to to Jerome you know this person was in a state of denial but you know you look at why I mean at the time no one people didn't know very much about what was going on. You know, like that's in the broader culture in Nigeria at the time, right? Like, you know, at the same time, there was, it wasn't clear that like anybody could do anything for you if you went to the hospital, right? So why subject yourself to that is sort of like the reasoning when you, you're, you might just be pushed around from hospital to hospital, or you might just be told that, you know, this is the end, uh, you know, maybe you live in a state of denial and say like, you know what, everything's fine. You know, I'll get over this you know, again, I I didn't meet Jerome. This was told to me by somebody who knew him very well. So it's not like I can ask Jerome what his state was, um, and like sort of what the decisions were. But I think you can get a sense. And, you know, again, if you map it to the way that people deal with other diseases, for example, you know, in certain places, or, you know, before, right, in here or around the world, people wouldn't tell people when they had a cancer diagnosis, right? They wouldn't say you know, you, this is the disease that you have because it was like, well, what can you do about it? So like, we're just not going to tell you. So it's not to quote unquote worry you. Um, you know, I think if you if you um, watch uh, Lulu Lang's The Farewell, right? I think there's there's an element of that in that in that story. You know, and so I think it's just again about how do people deal with this individually, and how do people and how do societies then also deal with it in in uh, when something that is is massive and overwhelming hits you, you can deal with it on both levels, or you can look at it at both levels.
2: In the book, you also talk about, and, and immediately after the passage that you just read, um, how during the HIV/AIDS crisis, Western doctors and healthcare professionals tended to sort of look down on Africa and assume that only Western medicine is going to be able to fix the problem. They're sort of, I would call this the "we are the world" complex from you know the America side. Um, And they only see what you term the tragic Africa. What we don't hear as much about is what African governments did and still do to combat HIV AIDS. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that specifically and specifically talk about Nigeria.
5: So first to tackle this, the tragic Africa uh, thing, I mean, you know, years, years and years, hundreds of years of, of narrative around that, that Forms uh, that has formed a lot of response to many different issues on the continent and many different, you know, whether you want to call them problems or challenges or whatever, you know, we can talk about that in more detail a little bit. You know, specifically with regards to HIV/AIDS. I mean, again, two two things to consider. One, you're dealing with resource scarce environments. We we'll just plug the reason for why those environments are resource scarce, and a lot of that has to do with you know cultures of extraction that were pushed by a lot of these Western uh, countries, you know, that benefited deeply by keeping population subjugated. So we'll just put that there and park that. You know, that said, it's not like people, when they recognize there's a problem, don't actually do things to deal with the problem. Sometimes it takes time for people to recognize there's a problem. Um, We can talk about that with regards to what's happening now with COVID and whatnot, but then that doesn't mean that people are just kind of sitting there waiting to be helped or not trying to figure out what they can do with the resources available to address the problem. So in Nigeria specifically, when folks finally woke up and decided like this is at the, the governmental level, there was a problem. Okay, you're dealing with a country that doesn't have, given the size of its population, that much money to spend per patient or per person, you know. But at the same time, that didn't stop people from uh, locally grown awareness campaigns that, in a sense, predated some of what you would think. You know, everyone's like, well, they're not talking about it, they're not thinking about it. Not true necessarily. You know, uh, internally, like you know, there was first a big push. Um, in the military to raise awareness about this, and then also then looking at how you could take some of those, those elements and lessons and use that for the wider society. There were a whole slew of doctors and nurses, healthcare professionals who were very aware of what was going on and very much trying to spread word and spread knowledge about HIV AIDS, even if they didn't necessarily have the access to treatment that would have helped to prevent the spread of the of HIV. Um, and there were local activists like, you know, north, south, east, west, in Nigeria who were you know, marching, like really coming out and, and telling people their status, trying to get people to understand that they're, you know, you need to combat the stigma associated with the disease. And, and I interviewed a few of these folks in the, uh, and spoke with them in the book, like, you know, you need to, to combat the stigma in order for people to feel comfortable, you know, doing what we talked about earlier, which is going to seek treatment and seek healthcare and figure out a way to to actually to to find solutions to this health problem or health crisis they were facing on an individual level, and that we were facing on a societal level, you know. And so that's what I mean by looking beyond the fact that you know you're you're sort of like in that like Conrad mode where you just see diseased and starved bodies like you know looming figures, all of which are faceless and formless, just kind of dying left, right, and center, to people with agency who are faced with a really incredible uh, and devastating challenge, but who are, are are doing what they can do to to shape their lives and to, to meet the challenge.
4: So interesting listening to you talk. I can't help but remember that about a year ago, Whitney and I taped an, an episode where we had Richard Preston on, and, and in um, in his book about Ebola, there's, uh, you know, an ordinary citizen who Uh, uses the garbage bag method and sort of like invents this way around um, a problem. And so and also in in what you're saying, I can sort of hear this way that we talk about knowledge and action and how they're linked in narrative and how they're presumed to not be linked. Um, You know, oh, we don't want to know if we can't act um, and all of the ways that we assume things about that. and And the tragic Africa trope doesn't really apply to COVID-19. It was interesting as we were conceiving this episode, you know, one of our one of the students in in Whitney's podcasting class was sort of naming places where, you know, in Africa, COVID was really well controlled. And according to um, covid19statistics.org, um, as of February 18th, Nigeria had 150,246 confirmed cases and 1,803 confirmed deaths due to COVID. So that's 127 cases per million people. And in the US, oh my God, do I have to say these terrible numbers? This is so bad. So we have, yeah, 30,313 cases per million people. I'm laughing with horror, Um, right? Like that's, that's tragic US. So what does Nigeria understand that we don't?
5: I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm, I'm no longer in sort of the health policy arena, but I think there are a few things we should think about. One um, is for this epidemic and initially, right, when things, you know, when COVID quote unquote came out, right, uh, there were, you're, especially on the continent of Africa and in a country like Nigeria, you had systems because of things like Ebola, right, for monitoring and tracing, and you had people react very quickly when they realized what this thing was, you know, shutting down airports, travel, etc., that maybe helped us quite a bit. Um, the other thing I think you have to contend with is also that, you know, uh, testing and surveillance. So those numbers, you know, are one thing. We also have to, to be be aware of the fact that because of access to testing and and surveillance in the population, we might not have the full accurate picture of those numbers. So you might think that those numbers could go up after a certain point in time, you know, when when that is possible.
2: So some of it might be that there's unobserved disease that's in, okay, I see what right. you're saying.
5: You know, and some of it actually is attributable to the fact that you've got health people like healthcare professionals who have dealt with out, uh, sort of like outbreaks of disease and have a, a, a way to respond to them. So if you look at, again, Nigeria, you look at um, the guy who runs Nigerian CDC, you know, somebody who, who has had a lot of experience dealing with for example, Ebola in Liberia and Sierra Leone, right? And so that's somebody who's like, come back and is like, all right, look, this is what we need to do. If you look at some of the programs around testing and tracing in in some of these places, you know, you can uh, tie them to, uh, you know, campaigns for the, uh, against polio, right? You know, where they needed to, to really work hard to go to communities that were not, uh, that, that just didn't have access to healthcare and figure out a way to figure out who has, who has had exposure, right, to polio or whatnot. And also how can we get people the, the vaccination so that we can deal with the disease in these places? You know, and that's true of, of many countries. There's some countries where they've just been really, really good, you know, and they do have adequate uh, testing tracing and very low case loads. So you think about Rwanda, right? Which has done a remarkable job. Um, there are countries like Tanzania, where they say they've done a remarkable job and we're seeing to the contrary. Um, you know, everyone has been dealing with this in their own way. But that is, again, I think what's important to understand is that people are dealing with it, right? And there are infrastructures to deal with it, even if they are inadequate. I think there's a lot of uh, thought or being put into why it has not spread in the same way. And I've heard various theories. Um, nobody really knows because no one has, has had a chance to really do those papers. But, you know, maybe it's that There is less travel in terms of uh, infrastructure has prevented movement, you know, between urban and rural areas. So you're not getting the same spread that you would in places where people can easily move around. It's one of the reasons, for example, in, in the DRC, right, where you have an outbreak of Ebola in a certain area. And it doesn't spread very far because, you know, those places are not as accessible and then the disease burns itself out.
2: You mean like people aren't going to huge motorcycle rallies and we're not wearing masks and spring? You know, way?
5: you don't have that that kind of behavior. <laughs> and then maybe there is also uh in terms of like people's education about these things, because of previous experience with, you know, with some of these devastating illness outbreaks, people have a different attitude towards them versus, you know, countries where people have considered themselves invincible, right? Uh and have not really experienced the same, the same issues. You know, I'm thinking about the United States, where everybody just feels like they can do whatever because they haven't faced you know, what you have to do, the challenges of dealing with, with a disease that has spread. What I will say is worrying um, is when it comes time to deal with the vaccination and treatment thing, I think you could get into a situation that is very much like what happened with, uh, with HIV AIDS and treatment for HIV AIDS, right? And this is where I get very concerned. It was found that the best way to deal with the spread of HIV in uh, around the world was essentially to treat people, right? The more people have access to medication, the sort of like the longer they live, the lower their viral ro- loads, the less likely they are to transmit the uh, HIV to other people. That's just fact, right? The issue of course was treatment with HIV was expensive at first. It's, you know, it's, it's still expensive now, right? Um, But what people focused on, you know, when they finally got the message, they focused on here was like, let's get as many people we can access the treatment as possible. And what did you see? Numbers dropped, right? The thing was, for the continents of Africa, everybody focused for the longest time on behavior change, behavior change. And I think I write about this in the book that like, oh, these people just can't control themselves. They're sleeping with everybody willy-nilly. They're promiscuous, this, that, and the other. And so, so much energy was placed put on that when the truth was, if you got people access to treatment, then you would see exactly what I just described before. Problem is a lot of these countries, this is where the resource issue comes in. You know, you didn't have the same, you know, funding to be able to deal with providing access to treatment for people. That's where, you know, people say a lot of things about President uh, George W. Bush, but this is one of the things you have to give credit for, which was the PEPFAR program, which would, you know, like, which provided money to countries to, access treatment and provide treatment for their citizens. Now, when we look at vaccines and vac- for COVID, I think we might see something similar, right? Which is with the countries that have the money to provide the vaccine, can like purchase large batches of the vaccine to the detriment of everybody else in the world, can distribute that vaccine Uh, get everybody vaccinated. Right. And then what you will see, I think, and I hope that I'm wrong, but I think you'll see something like, well, you know, these people who have COVID that's on them, it's their behavior. They'll start pushing that on other people. And then you'll see discriminatory practices, especially around travel, you know, access, et cetera, like
4: developing. And that's going to be a very big problem. So you mean like COVID-19 passports and stuff that people have been talking about? That terrifies me quite a bit because, you
5: know, like it Look, it will be very easy for people to do, and it's going to be devastating economically and socially.
2: I'm doing some reading about the, and I don't know if you know about this, and but I just wanted to ask you about it, the Africa Centers for Disease Control, which is a sort of transcontinental organization, similar to America's CDC, um, that has done a really good job of helping work with the COVID outbreak there because it can, it, it, you know, it can walk, work across borders and has been more successful than our own CDC, which is supposedly a great organization that was totally sort of muzzled and shut down, it turns out, during the Trump administration. What do you know about that group?
5: So, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn because I don't know as much as as I would like to about the inner workings of the African CDC. But I think, you know, the first thing is, one, having a cross like a transcontinental, uh, uh, organization to deal with this is a really important thing, especially when you're dealing with a, a continent where borders are porous, right? So this is the thing I think that where we have to jump on the rest of the world, like a recognition that borders don't mean very much when it comes to the transmission of disease. Yes, you can you can uh, shut down flights and whatnot, but people move, right? So if you're going to have a solution, it can't just be a one country solution. It has to be, you know, a global solution. I think folks recognize that and realize that on the continent, the issue again that we have to deal with and that just keeps coming back is just resources. Like if each of the countries on the continent, you know like Nigeria where I'm from, other places were, were adequately resourced to deal with health issues if the African CDC itself, you know, was adequately resourced in a way, like then, you know, like, you know, perhaps we would be a continent where you wouldn't see very much covid because, you know, we already we have it in our heads how to deal with some of these things and people would be able to to uh, just, you know, on the cultural side, there's one. And then on the second side is, you know, maybe we would have the facilities or abilities to manufacture vaccines and, and coordinate an international response across the continent. These are things that I think there's there's a desire to do. And I think the creation of the African CDC speaks to that. It's just how do you make sure that you ramp that up and get it the funding that
4: it needs? So um, one of the things that's I feel like started to happen to me is I've read the news and be about the past month and a half. It's been that every time I see the word variant, I basically twitch. And I mean, you know, I have a sibling in Europe. I, um, you know, we're reading about the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, the new, the seven new UK variants that they found the other day. Um, one of the other things that I was reading, I think it was an, maybe it was an article in the Atlantic was about how, especially if rich countries hoard vaccine, Um, this will also lead to the development of more variants and that we will just end up chasing our own tails eternally. Is this true? Not that I need more things to worry about, but I'm curious.
5: I'm not an epidemiologist, but what I do understand first is that with any virus, right? Every virus is going to mutate. Like that just happens. Like some mutations are not so great. Some mutations are benign. Like some make the thing like, you know, more virulent as we've seen with some of these, these variants, I think there's a gap in, in the way that scientists talk about uh, what this means and the way that, you know, it's messaged to the broader public. And that's where, where for me too, right? Like I see variant, I think, oh God, here we go. Do you know? Um, I think it's that, that communication gap that's really frustrating because I think the scientists who are, who are thinking about this, like have a way of speaking about it and understanding, and then the public has its own way of understanding. And there's just, you know, to get to get a message across about how we need to be vigilant and careful, like, you know, is one that that you can't do in a very nuanced fashion, right? That's, that's one of the biggest issues in If you think about variants like look the flu vaccine that that we all take the reason why you take a flu vaccine every year is because there are mutations to the flu virus and they have to, you know, they're, they're constantly thinking about, okay, so what is the mutation going to be like, how do we give people an updated uh, vaccine that will help them deal with whatever variant it is that we're, we're thinking, or the variants that we're thinking might be the most prominent this year. So that's not a new thing. The issue is we're dealing with a new disease where there isn't a lot of herd immunity, you know, that concept keeps coming up, you know, and, you know, we just don't, we, we haven't, we don't have the systems or structures, uh, like to be able to deal with it. So that's kind of where this whole, this whole variant issue and problem comes from. The question is not about can you deal with the variants, the question is can you get these things, the vaccinations out in time you know, to everybody or to a significant portion of the population so that you uh, reduce everybody's exposure. I think the other thing for people to remember about vaccination is vaccination is as much a societal thing as it is an individual thing, right? So yes, you wanna be vaccinated, At the same time, being vaccinated is not just about, oh, I've been vaccinated so I can do whatever I want, right? It's about getting enough people vaccinated so that you can reduce the burden on the healthcare system for those people who do get sick. It is a thing about how do we tell people why we are doing this, why it's necessary for everyone to get vaccinated, why it's important, even as we get vaccinated, that everybody still follow, you know, like the protocols around distancing and staying, you know, like staying away from people, et cetera, et cetera you know, so that we can get ahead of this thing, so that we can put ourselves in a position to deal with the the variants that will inevitably pop up because that's just natural process.
2: Well, speaking of the social element of a pandemic like COVID, you know, or uh, an epidemic like HIV AIDS, you know, prejudice against plays a role in this, right? You know, the prejudice against the LGBTQ community played a role in the way that people fail to take HIV AIDS seriously, both in the US and in Africa. Partisan prejudice has clearly affected the way that Americans react to the pandemic. You know, Republicans refuse to wear masks. Democrats don't uh, do wear masks and don't, and don't refuse to wear them. Democratic communities of color die in greater numbers. White Republicans protest to keep their favorite bar open, you know. So I just wondered if there was a way that that prejudice had broken, you know, how, it bro- how that broke down in Africa. Like, did it work the same way? Was there right and left differences? Was it a different sort of way of thinking about um, COVID or was that not an issue?
5: Yeah, I mean, and I, I, you know, I think the question about prejudice is always a hard one because it's also like when you're speaking about groups of people, right? You know, like Republicans do this, Democrats do that. Like, you know, I want to, like, I guess we have to be careful, right? In that sense, like, not all and not all, right? Um, And I think it's 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 less. There is very much. I think you can say there's a partisan breakdown in the way that people have approached this, but I think there's also just, you know, there's the issue of wealth, right? And people feeling like. You know, and it's people from all places feeling like, well, maybe I don't have to follow the rules, this, that, and the other. I mean, yes, let's observe the larger trends, but also let's not like sort of pigeonhole people immediately, right? Um, I will say that, you know, I think it's just, <laughs> it's absurd in a way, right? Like, I think this is, this is what happens. Um, we are very privileged in the United States of America, right? And we are, we are privileged to the extent that people are, um, feel like they have a right to not suffer
2: yeah for sure we talk about that all the time on this podcast that's for sure true
5: and i think that's true of all of us right and i think what that means is that everybody you know that's one and then two is we're a society that i think has really gone gone in very hard of this idea of the rights of the individual but to the exclusion of the fact that you have you know with the privilege and obligation to people in your in your like fellow members of your society and again putting on a mask is it's about you, but it's also about all the rest of us, and it's also about if we all do it, then we can get back to enjoying some of the individual freedoms and liberties that we that we have. You know, putting on a mask isn't is not you know you, it's not like you're not being arrested as a political prisoner and thrown in jail and having you know your your freedom of speech muzzled. That's not what this is, and I think that you know people have been very successful for political gain in conflating those things, um, and that's really disturbing because we're all in a really bad spot both health wise and also economically for it. In terms of prejudice on the continent, you know, I can't really speak to that. I, mean, I don't think it breaks down in the same way. And I think it's hard to map sort of American political divides onto other countries or cultures or places just because the way that politics is practiced ends up being different. And the, the fissures in society, the, the breaks are different, right? You know, you're also dealing with places that the, the level of access to resources is magnitudes different, right? You're talking about a place where we could manufacture here in the United States as many masks and protective equipment, you know, like as we want, if we had wanted to and had the political will to do it early on. And you're talking about places that just don't have the same resources to be able to do that. You're talking about a country that, if it wanted to, could have converted whole factories into making, you know, ventilators, like just like that. Right? Again, political will is the issue, and you're you're dealing with places that don't have the same capacity. You know, I think here in the United States, it's very. Uh, interesting and disheartening to see again how how political systems react when people in positions of privilege and you know we should also really just be clear about the racial element like when white people in America a lot of folks just didn't think this would affect them or don't think it applies to them and so it's either like that's that disease that's happening over there. And I don't see it in my community. Therefore, I don't have to deal with it. Therefore, whatever. And, and then the next step, which is also then I don't want to devote resources to dealing with it, which is a very dangerous thing. Why we're in a situation where even with the evidence right in front of us, we still have groups of people pushing you know, absurdities for political gain when people are literally dying around them is something that I don't know how, how to deal with or talk about or explain, but it's the reality that we live in.
2: I guess I was thinking also about you know, they're, they're, like for instance, look at Brazil. The, the, the President Bolsonaro, who's allied with our former President Trump, has been a very vibrant virus denier uh, in the similar way that Trump was. And so, and you know, I guess you I appreciate your point about like not all Republicans are that way, but I could say that the Republican leadership certainly was. Are there leaders? in africa that have gone down the bolsonaro trump path i know that tanzania's president seems like maybe he has done that is he a rarity are most other leaders sort of not doing that how did that break down
5: i mean i think the case of tanzania is just a totally unfortunate and absurd one but yeah that's you see what happens where you have a, a leader denying and then you get the statements after a short illness this person died you have multiple members of cabinet you know, or, you know, government, ranking government officials who are, are succumbing to COVID or something that we think is COVID, you know, that's, that is problematic. I think that's one of the most glaring examples. I think for the most part across the continent, uh, you see that people have been actually pretty responsible in terms of dealing with the fact that this, this uh, disease exists and that things are happening in, in not such a great way. You know, you see it in Nigeria with um, folks really taking steps and measures early on to deal with in the way that we could with the resources available to combat the the, the pandemic. You see it in South Africa again, however, you know, wherever everybody and every country will have missteps, but South Africa, you know, going into very strict and stringent lockdowns, whether like as an official policy, whether or not you get people to comply with that is a different thing, but at least you see a government that is being responsible in some way. I think that's true across the continent. And I think there are outliers just in the same way that you could call. Our former president an outlier and you could call Bolsonaro an outlier but like at the same time you know like the the problem is when you're dealing with massively populated countries like the United States like um, Brazil you know with people who are are uh shall we say not necessarily believers in the evidence in front of them that's a massive problem not just for them but for all of us Somebody should send a note to Florida about this. Florida is another good example of what could happen when you have have folks who maybe have political politically minded intentions in dealing with something where the divides are shouldn't be the 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 most important thing. You know, where you're talking about denying people access to to vaccinations if they push against your policies. Like, you know, that's a very scary place for any society to be in. And I think we got to watch out for
4: stuff like so that was specifically in Florida, also where there was that, that one clinic set up in a wealthy area. And then I also earlier today I reading a, I read a story, and I think this was also Florida, two young women dressed up as grandmothers to jump the vaccine queue. Oh.
5: This is America 2021. I mean, I think the thing that's really interesting to me about this, and and, you know, I I haven't found a way to write about it yet. But the United States, we sit here and a lot of people sit here and lecture other countries about their political systems or about breakdowns, you know, and, and look down our noses at other countries, you know, for, 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 you know, being unable to handle certain things. And the truth is, leadership really matters. And it doesn't take that long to go from a place that has the ability to deal with these things to a place that is a total basket case, as the United States has been with COVID, just because uh, of leadership and ineffective leadership or malignant leadership. And, you know, that's, that is, (laughs) I mean, you're seeing the effects of four years of that here in the United States. And look, whether you're talking about, you know, a, a leadership that is like, like that one is lying to its citizens, that's supremely individualistic, and that is unwilling to invest in infrastructure that will benefit the whole population, like you get a certain result, like, what does that sound like, you know, I was joking with uh, some friends from Nigeria, when they're talking about rolling blackouts in Texas, and you know, again, this is not to 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 take away from the real suffering that, that you know that has caused. But what that happens when you deliberately underinvest in infrastructure. Where do you see that? You see that in places across the continent where maybe it's not deliberate underinvestment, but you see underinvestment in infrastructure. And then you get rolling blackouts, you get in an inability, you get sort of like reduced services. You know, we have to be very thoughtful about that in the United States of America because they're trade-offs. You can have all the individualism you want, right? Um, and then you can also live in a place that is not so pleasant, right? Or you can contribute. And contributing doesn't mean you're a socialist. It doesn't mean that you're like, you know, a communist. It just means that you're trying to be responsible for the community around you. And, you, and, and you're trying to get government to do what government is supposed to do.
4: Uzo, we really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, listeners, Our Kind of People is available in stores for those who want a closer look at the impact HIV and AIDS has had in the world. And you should also definitely check out Beast of No Nation and Speak No Evil. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you.
4: Now we're excited to introduce a new sponsor for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts.
2: Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading right to your home. That's, we're very much into the immersive magic of reading around here. Um, their age-based book clubs ensure they, they get the right book for the kids. You know, So my son is 11. He, he actually has some books, as we'll talk about in a minute, that are for 11-year-olds, and he was very excited about them.
4: So each of these book bundles is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interests and nurture healthy curiosities.
2: All right. Yeah. All right. So speaking of the book bundle, we got one. You have a book
4: bundle? I have a book bundle. Uh, Tell me about the book bundle.
2: It comes in this really cool turquoise box. It has like, uh, they have bookmarks in it that you can put in the books and like real books. Like we got, this is a Nest for Celeste came.
3: It says the literati on the box.
2: does say literati on the box. Did you know what that was going to be when you got it?
3: Something from literati.
2: <laughs> this is my son, Miles. He was very excited by the literati on the box box. Which of these books was the favorite, most interesting one to you? We had Walk on Two Moons, which is a Newbery Award winner. Lost Property Office. What are you going to read first?
3: Um, this one, The Land of Lore. Oh,
2: why did you pick that one?
3: Um, cause it sounds cool and I read the back of it.
2: What about the back of it did, uh, did you like?
3: The adventure part.
2: <laughs> Miles has also done math puzzles. I mean, look, these books were all keepers in his, in his, right? You decided to keep them all.
3: Yeah, why yeah. would we give them away?
2: Well, because you give away the books you you don't think are interesting. That's what you do. Alright, so no sorting through hundreds of titles trying to guess what your child will cherish. Literati sends you the best in children's literature, and you can choose which ones you want to purchase and you can send the rest back.
4: So from art and adventure to Tales of Compassion or Adventure, if you are like Miles and myself. Each Literati box follows a new enriching theme with personalized extras like stickers, surprises, and special guest artwork. Every box is a fun and fresh adventure. Tell me, were there surprises in your box?
3: Um, the math book.
2: And there was a poster. Fun. Head to literati.com slash FNF for twenty-five percent off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey
4: like no other. Literati.com slash FNF is the only place to find that 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, which is the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning.
2: That's literati.com slash FNF, the initials of our show.
4: Now we're thrilled to be joined by Bindu Shajan Perapadhan of The Hindu and Suhasani Raj of The New York Times. Both are based in Delhi, where they've been covering the pandemic in India. Bindu is a special correspondent with The Hindu and has covered the health and social development sector for two decades. She's reported extensively on TB, leprosy, and the ill effects of pollution, won the International Leprosy Union Award, and a scholarship for highlighting the plight of leprosy-afflicted persons in India. She received a shovening scholarship from the British government, and this past year, she's been reporting on the COVID pandemic. Bindu, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Suhasini Raj has worked as an investigative journalist for over a decade and joined the New York Times New Delhi Bureau as a reporter in 2014. She's covered stories including the political ascension of a firebrand Hindu priest, a violent dispute between maids and madams in Noida, and the shutdown of a Christian charity. Prior to working at the time, she worked undercover on a story that exposed a bribe-taking scheme involving 11 members of India's parliament. As a result of her reporting, the politicians were expelled from their positions. She's from Lucknow in Uttar Pradesh. So, Hasani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sugi. It's
2: a privilege to have both of you with us. India's status throughout the pandemic has been really interesting to me because um, it's a populous and varied country. It's a democracy, produces so much of the world's medicine. And it's had both unique problems and unique successes over the past year. India seemed very successful at presenting the spread of the virus early on, more successful than the United States. And then later, India had its own huge spike. And now in terms of total cases, that country is second only to the United States. And still more complicated, India has recently seen a huge drop in cases, which no one quite seems able to explain. Currently, active cases are at 235 per million people while in the United States, as we mentioned earlier, that number is 30,313 active cases per million people, which is not as good. So speaking as a citizen of one large democracy who is curious about another large democracy, what has India gotten wrong and gotten right?
1: This is Bindu. Uh, India is a democracy. It, it has also its unique problems. It has also its unique challenges and its unique strengths. And I believe it's a combination of people's effort and government effort, which has worked for us. We closed our borders very early on. Uh, we learned from the experience of China, which is one of our neighbors, and that really has worked for us. And I think people have put in an effort. We, are, uh, we face leprosy, we face TB, we faced AIDS. So it's always been, we have uh, gastroenteritis, we have cholera, we have chicken gunia. So it's a circle that we've learned from and we've learned from very well, it seems.
2: That's fascinating. So, like, you've had some experience with dealing with epidemics, basically. I mean, our previous guest uh, was talking about how Africa had a lot of experience and also has done better than the United States. So, it's, and also that proximity to China is something I hadn't thought of. Yes, true. Um, Bindu, one of your early stories was about the first confirmed infection in Kerala, which is one of the states where COVID protocols ended up being the most successful. Can you talk about how that state got that accomplished and how it compared to other states
1: and how the union health ministry coordinated this? The first, the first COVID case of India was reported in Kerala. This is a state which has been known world over as a success story. But currently, Kerala and Maharashtra, which are, the, which are two large states, have more than 74% of the active COVID cases in India, which really? is a large number. Yes, So India is seeing a spike in cases again, with the ministry now directing Punjab, Jammu and Kashmir, Madhya Pradesh to increase their testing and surveillance. So going back to Kerala, Kerala uh, is a state which has 35 million people. It has 100% literacy. It has a state government which is extremely proactive. It is a state government which has learned to be prepared for emergency from 2018 floods 2019 Nipah outbreak. So those lessons uh, have been learned well. They have uh, they have worked on testing, tracking. They have invested systematically in their healthcare. These are these are really the things, the key pillars which has helped the state survive COVID. And like I said, it's a state which is seeing large number of active cases. It is seeing large number of recoveries, and it is also seeing uh, you know a lot a lot of travelers coming in, a lot of foreigners. A lot of Indians who were settled abroad coming back home, which is
4: bringing the virus back home. Oh, is that is that the reason that the cases went up there? Because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I sort of, my family is Sri Lankan. And of course, I think there are a lot of Sri Lankans who who like to think, you know, Kerala is like Sri Lanka. Look at the literacy rate. and Yeah, and- it
1: really is. Because geographically, we aren't very far away. So it really is the same. Uh, our literacy rates are roughly the same. We have a lot of people from Kerala who are settled abroad who came back. Uh, Once COVID struck, so they really uh, COVID doesn't know boundaries. COVID travels with people, so when if you if you if you come back, the virus comes back with you.
4: And so speaking of this, of course, in India, there's an enormous number of migrant workers who are migrating from one Indian state to another. And and that also was a challenge. And Suhasini, you wrote about how the prime minister's strict lockdown early on left these sorts of laborers who had migrated from one state to another stranded and how the, the train set up to return them to their home states ended up spreading the virus across the country. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Uh, this is Suhasini. So at the beginning of the lockdown, uh, you know, he was uh, the prime minister was widely praised for taking charge, and his approval ratings had hit close to somewhere around eighty-three percent, his highest ever. But uh, that's where he saw himself to be vulnerable, you know, on the migrant front, and there was like this growing storm on social media, and there was rising criticism from India's opposition parties, you know, and the the, the optics of the whole thing were like. Uh, turning out to be uh, you know like turning out to be really nasty for mr Modi and his government and uh, so so they, they they went through this whole thing when they when they started the lockdown uh, they said that they were going to follow this economic theory where they're going to do like a complete lockdown like the strictest ever, and then they're going to be hedging for the worst, basically. So so although they had expected that there's going to be some migrant movement, but what they weren't expecting were the optics that they saw in you know, all these migrants dying on the roads of hunger and of heat and, you know, coming before the trains. So, so, so they just went ahead. It was like a knee jerk thing. They were reacting to a situation, basically. And that's when they decided, like, you know, in April sometime that they're going to be starting these trains which are going to be running from like the affluent parts like maharashtra you know where the migrants had kind of traditionally migrated in gujarat uh, and they'd be kind of coming back to these rural hinterlands where there were no cases uh, so the the virus was going to be in fact being carried from these, you know, really highly infectious places at that point in time, to those where which were like green zones. So the lockdown, in fact, ended up spreading, you know, the virus via these migrant trains versus um, the whole idea of trying to contain them where they were, because you couldn't kind of keep these guys holed up in these really small rooms, you know, with nothing to eat. And um, the infection kind of was uh, there, because we've, when we kind of started researching the story, and we were trying to kind of get at the missteps uh, that the Modi government followed, um, uh, starting with the pandemic and the lockdown, and one of them was this: uh, the starting of this mic, the timing of when they started the trains, by when the infection had spread really deeply into these pockets, these urban pockets in Surat, uh, where you know the, the maximum number of. Uh, Uh, laborers from Odisha kind of traveled. So what it ended up doing in effect was spreading it from the most infected to uh, where there were no infections at all.
2: So that's really interesting. So when you say migrant uh, workers, you're talking about Indian citizens who are moving from one state to another within India.
3: That's right. That's right. Uh, it's, it's these workers who are coming from these back and beyond villages of rural India, basically. And uh, traditionally, you know, they used to be uh, doing, they were farmers. And as, as the, you know, the economy opened up and liberalization happened, they started traveling. So the story, the, this one particular place where I zeroed and on in Gunjam, traditionally, they used to be working there uh, three, four decades back when these contractors came to these villages, looking for cheap labor. And Odisha so has A widespread poverty. So that's when they started migrating to these big hubs of textile and diamonds like Surat. And that's how the maximum number of uh, people employed in these industries and uh, industrial hubs like Surat are from poor places like Ganjam in Odisha.
2: We were talking to Uza, our our previous guest, about um, Africa. And I'm really curious about how nationalism plays a role in the way that the virus has been dealt with. Now Modi is a nationalist leader that we've talked about on this podcast before. Leaders like Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil and President Trump in my fair country uh, were big virus deniers. And that sort of seemed to be part and parcel of their nationalist rhetoric. That does not seem to have been the case with Modi. And I'm really curious why he seems to have taken the disease so much more seriously. Maybe both of you have opinions on this.
1: This is Bindu. India understands uh, diseases. We've, We've had a very checkered history with diseases. Uh, Covid is not the first uh, kind of virus to strike the country. So, uh, going back to the plight of the migrant laborers, I would like to say that it was there for everyone to see, and pictures like this, similar stories were echoed from across the globe. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't country specific. It wasn't state specific. So, the lockdown uh, and the virus affected us all. Uh, it it affected everyone. It uh, forced us you know, it forced women to give birth alone, it forced people to die alone, it forced families to say goodbye to their people without a proper grieving process, without a formal goodbye, it snatched away the right of families and friends. And, you know, people have lost jobs, Uh, people have suffered pay cuts, factories have shut down, we've had mental physical illnesses, so it's, COVID is, is a very, very isolating uh, disease. And I think we saw that, India saw that very early on, that the devastation that it can cause is, uh, is tremendous. But it has also brought out the country's resilience, uh, re- leaders' quick thinking, uh, the Indian population's ability to adapt, our zeal for survival. And uh, what COVID has really taught India is that the threat is real. It is lethal, and it can happen again.
2: I mean, all of those things about the isolation of uh, of COVID are obviously true. We had a situation in our country where half of the country thought that this disease didn't really exist. <laughs> it still, kind of thinks that it doesn't really exist. Doesn't want to wear masks. Doesn't want to socially distance. It doesn't seem, Suhasini, like there's been a breakdown along political lines in India in the same way that happened in the United States. I'm just curious if you could speak to that.
3: Sure, this is Suhasini. So I think what Modi got right was in the way he started out, uh, with these public messages, you know, about wearing masks and about maintaining social distancing. And then soon after came the lockdown and, and there was a, remember there was a dry run for it, you know, and the, uh, the chief minister said that they had not been taken into confidence. So it was in a very, uh, kind of, um, quintessential Modius kind of way in which he ca- came down with the lockdown without taking people on board, because, uh, you know officers close to him say that had we tried to deliberate we would have never come around to doing like this perfect lockdown you know trying to keep the country safe so i think there is that's where uh, he got it right the narrative right in in trying to spread that message wise radio programs and you know we'd pick up the mobile and call and the first thing we'd hear is like wash your hands and wear your masks and that was like way back in february So I think he was trying to kind of prepare the population, but not in that alarmist kind of way. It was when the lockdown came is when people started getting alarmed. And what we saw was vigilantism. We did a story on how these virus vigilantes would jump at people who they thought were the uh, the carriers of virus. For instance, somebody you know, traveling from urban India to rural India, they were lynched. You know, and there was uh, there was a whole lot of narrative that was built around Muslims at that point in time, because um, you know there was a congregation that was happening here in Delhi, uh, which turned out to be a, a super spreader of sorts within that community of Muslims, and um, and and this whole narrative was spread that Muslims were like kind of spreading the virus all over India. So we saw that hatred kind of against Muslims uh, spike up during that time. You know, and uh, uh, so that's how it kind of panned the the lockdown till it kind of uh, you know saw migrants fleeing and then kind of settling down into like this the lockdown slowly opening up uh, sometime may end and June mid so we saw like a lot of ups and downs uh, as as uh, we went uh, along trying to control the virus here.
4: So, I mean, it's so interesting to think about, of course, South Asia's history with infectious disease, um, that list that you said before, Bindu. I mean, I've had a bunch of relatives of chikungunya and malaria and what have you. Um, And you've also both referred to the ups and downs. And so around September, the case numbers in India were really, really bad. Um, But by November, they were dropping. And I was sort of like, Why? Um, And you both wrote about experts warning that complacency and things like Hindu festival season could lead to resurgence. And we're now a few months past that. And Bindu, you referred to resurgence in Kerala. What was the public reaction to that drop in cases like? And how doable was it to get people to keep being careful when the cases were dropping? I feel like the US might be at exactly this moment now. Uh,
1: This is Bindu. So uh, Modi is a very popular leader in India. So uh, it is easy then to cut through and get to the people directly. So when he says, wear your mask, people will comply. When he says, stay at home, people will comply. People also saw the fact that medical uh, medical staff was putting in, they weren't going back home. They were stuck in hospitals for months together, for weeks together. So, uh, uh, as as human beings, I think India just responded to the fact that we needed to do more to keep the mask on. And we have a press conference every single day. It is telecast. It is It's for anyone to come in. You can see it. The government has been very open about what it wants to do. Government releases numbers every day. It releases the number of vaccinations done, the number of cases, the number of deaths, the number of active cases, which which state is doing well, which state is not doing well. So it's a very transparent system. And transparency does bring in public participation. And once people are involved in the system, it is very easy to tell them, Look, we have trouble at hand, look, your children won't be able to go to school, your factories will remain closed, uh, industries will not work, so we need to work together to keep this virus at bay. So I think that, and we had seen the devastation that uh, COVID had caused before. Our hospitals were flooded, We had our ICUs were running out of bed. India came, you have to remember that India came from a place where India did not have enough PPEs, we did not have enough ventilators, we did not have enough beds, we did not have enough medicines to cater to the people who were coming in with COVID. From that, India has now become a country which can export ventilators, which is exporting PPEs, which has enough number of beds for. So India has seen the state of wanting a bed, not getting a bed, to now being able to control the situation so that really that narrative really has worked for the country people have realized that they have to put in the effort it is not just a government deal you have to bring in that effort you have to bring in yourself to keep social distancing to not crowd to wear your mask to uh, you know basically adhere to the appropriate protocol that really has worked for india but one thing that seems to be running into surprising
4: obstacles, you refer to the, the production of medicine, and certainly that's been really impressive. India's rolling out two vaccines or her has been since I think about mid-January. Covivax vaccine COVID shield, and, and in Shield is an Indian version of AstraZeneca. Um, and the vaccines are remarkably effective, but the rollout has been plagued with problems. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't actually mean to use plagued there. But anyway, um, can you tell us about the public reaction to the vaccination efforts in India? And maybe, Suhasini, can you respond to that first?
3: Sure. So, uh, you know, mid-Jan, India started its vaccine rollout. And, you know, this campaign has been unfolding in a country that's uh, kind of reported more than uh, 11 million Uh, the 10.5 over 11 million uh, coronavirus infections. That's the second largest caseload after the United States and over 150,000 deaths, which is the world's third highest tally. So that's the background in which kind of India started the vaccine rollout. And um, the government was hoping to inoculate about 300,000 people on that Saturday. But the data showed that they had kind of given shots uh, to about 165,000 by that day. So there was both excitedness and nervousness Uh, Because there was there was a whole lot of controversy that was surrounding you know the way in which the data had been put forth with respect to the way the you know the the both the vaccines uh, had been uh, put uh, in use basically and uh, there were doctors who were refusing to you know receive the shot there were others who were trying to get it to dispel fears so it was like a mixed bag of both you know they, they were excited as well there was a widespread fear you know there were certain stories in the media doing rounds that some people, there was at least one person who had died uh, and uh, people were kind of skeptical about there not being enough data about, out there about the safety of the vaccines. So, so it was like a mixed bag of reactions when it was rolled out. And the government was having problem trying to convince people into coming forward. And uh, uh, I remember in a Delhi hospital, all these resident doctors had given out a letter saying that they do not want to r- receive the second vaccine, Covaxin, which was made by Bharat Biotech, uh, which was kind of mired in controversy in the way they had uh, not put out proper data about its safety and efficacy.
2: Here in the U.S., um, under the Trump administration, there was a real lack of government acknowledgement of loss. Uh, which the kind of loss that Bindu was referring to just a little bit earlier in the in the interview, um, Bindu, you wrote a piece uh, about the national online memorial for COVID nineteen casualties in India, a project that was taken up by by a nonprofit. Um, it'd be nice if we had something like that here. Maybe we will have something. Uh, I wonder if you could read to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, Bindu here. Uh, this is a photographs, obituaries, blogs written by relatives or friends of COVID victims. This is an online national memorial conceived for those who died of COVID-19 across the country. This went live earlier uh, earlier this year, and it's an initiative by a Kolkata-based NGO, which comprises of uh, people from the medical fraternity and a few others. So COVID-19 snatched the opportunity for families to bid a traditional goodbye to their loved ones, who they lost to the virus. So this unique venture is an attempt to allow people across the country to grieve and possibly even heal together. Grief is a very private emotion, but through this website, uh, these people hope that uh, people will realize that they are not alone. Uh, This uh, website will display photographs, obituaries, blogs in memory of the individuals. And this will be written by relatives and friends
4: Thank you so much, Bindu. I, like Whitney, I hope for an American version of that, you know, um, Joe Biden, the night before he was inaugurated, gave us a very, gave us a moment, but it felt inadequate. Um, And Suhasini, for you, grief became personal during this pandemic when members of your family got the virus. And I wonder if you could read to us a little bit from your piece about that.
3: Sure. A few months ago, I was one of the lead reporters on an article about virus strains in India. Emergency transportation provided by the government during the spring and summer. They were organized to help transport migrant workers to their home villages, but they also ended up spreading the coronavirus throughout the country. I spent weeks poring over data in various districts. The coronavirus seemed, at the time, to be an all-consuming story, and then it swallowed up my entire life. In August, my father, who's diabetic, contracted the virus. I had to rush him in an ambulance to New Delhi, because there was a shortage of beds in a few good hospitals for coronavirus patients in his city, Lucknow. He barely made it through. He lost nearly all of his hearing and he experienced severe degeneration of his eyesight. While my father recuperated, I continued reporting on the virus strains. In the Ganjam district, a village on the east coast of India, I came across the story of Prafula Bihera, 39, a migrant who had left Ganjam over a decade earlier to find work at a factory in Surat in Western India. He died a couple of days after arriving in Ganjam by train. Six of the seven people traveling with him had tested positive for the virus, including his brother Rabindra. In a suitcase, Rafulla had 13 dresses for his four daughters. A short distance from his village, I learned about a primary school teacher, Simanchal Satapati, 26, who had started working at a quarantine center caring for infected migrants who had traveled home on the trains. He contracted the virus and died at a hospital. The grief broke his parents who had hanged himself both after hearing of his death. While working on those stories, I went to my hotel room in a small town next to the sea, near Profulla's and Simanjil's villages, and I called my family back home. My husband said that his father was showing symptoms of COVID-19. So was my husband and my son. In the span of a week, a number of my family members, including my sister-in-law and niece, had tested positive for the virus. After I arrived home, I had to take my husband's son and mother-in-law to the hospital. I felt engulfed, physically and emotionally, by uncertainties and struggled to keep morbid thoughts aside. How long would it be before the steroids they were prescribed take effect? What if their cases went from being moderate to severe? The only emotional help were my three golden retrievers who would crowd around me as I cried into the night and prayed for everyone to get well. I would wear a mask and try to keep an appropriate distance from my husband and son while serving their meals. We talked on group calls from our respective rooms. After my father-in-law was discharged, I breathed a sigh of relief, but that was short-lived. He became short of breath, just like Profulla and Simanjal did. Later, as he struggled with his oxygen mask and tubes, he had a fatal heart attack. In a surreal way, reporting on the coronavirus tragedies of other families helped me cope with COVID in my own. I knew I wasn't alone and I was heartened by the strength I saw in others who were coping. And conversely, seeing those I love get infected. My husband, father, son, niece, and mother-in-law recovering, thank goodness, and losing a dear family member to the virus gave me a depth of empathy for others in my reporting that I could never have imagined otherwise. The faces of Profulla and then Simanchal came to my mind as the ambulance workers offloaded my father-in-law's body, zipped up to the head in a white plastic bag. As the body was placed on a funeral pyre, I remembered interviewing the families of Profulla and Simanchal. I could hear the grief in their voices. The coronavirus tragedies in India continue to accumulate. I'll keep telling their stories. I know what they're going through.
2: I'm so sorry that's really difficult.
3: It was, uh, it was really tough. I mean, it was like surreal, you know, like faces were changing before my eyes. I mean, I was out there in the field and I'm interviewing these families where people are going breathless and I'm hearing the same on the phone and trying to kind of fight for a hospital bed. And that was a time when uh, the cases were like peaking in places like Jaipur where my in-laws lived and my family did. And it was a struggle getting a bed, which was like uh, i mean and i'm i'm well connected right like i'm i'm a journalist i can call up people and i can uh, get a bit and it is horrible
2: both of you are currently in india speaking to us from india maybe you could just tell me what it's like on the street in india today you know does ev- is everyone wearing masks uh what are are restaurants open like in my town i was jogging by a popular restaurant and shopping area the other day it was the first warm day in a long time and it was crowded and nobody had a mask on. And I was like, oh, my God, what is happening? You know, so I wondered what things were like on the ground there. Maybe we could start with Bindu and then hear from Sahasni. Yeah,
1: uh, Bindu yeah. So I can tell you about uh, Delhi and uh, I can tell you about Kerala, where I belong from. Uh, Delhi is seeing a very cautious, Delhi saw large numbers of COVID cases. So Delhi is extremely cautious. Uh, we also have a lot of people coming in. Uh, you, it's a big, uh, Delhi is the capital. So you have a lot of travelers coming in. You, our uh, government is here. So Delhi, the population is very cautious. Our schools are still shut. Our colleges haven't opened up. Uh, we have fines uh, if you are found without a mask.
2: Oh, really? That is That is not happening here. Okay. How much?
1: If you're found in a car, I think it's anywhere between five five to two thousand rupees five five hundred to two thousand rupees. Uh, restaurants have opened up, but people aren't aren't very enthusiastic about. I mean, we you you see uh, on a weekend you may see a crowd, but people are generally wearing their mask, and uh, people who aren't are gently reminded that they should. Uh, Gyms have slowly opened up, but then people, uh, you know, Delhi is having beautiful weather right now. So a lot of people would prefer to go out for a walk rather than crowd in a gym, which has air conditioning. So uh, people are taking a very cautious uh, step forward. Kerala, on the other hand, like I said, has has a population which is extremely vigilant about the fact that COVID is on the rise. They are uh, Their state government is... Uh, Uh, takes you know the the state government is involved with the people it's a very cautious responsible opening up that India is saying we aren't rushing out.
3: Uh, This is Suhasini and I have a kind of contradictory and contrasting view to Bindu's because I've been out and about reporting like a maniac. Uh, So I've been to uh, Bihar, I've been to Madhya Pradesh, I have uh, been to Goa and I right now I'm in Haryana and I do not see people wearing either masks or maintaining any kind of social distancing. Like just yesterday, there were about 1,500 people packed into this one-year-old's birthday party in Haryana. And oh when God. I talked to women, they said, oh, the have been here, done that, and gone. So it's like, you know, we're like kind of safe. And I was telling them, well, there could still be somebody lurking here who's carrying the virus. And they said, no, 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 we're like, uh, so-, so what I've seen is like a big opening up, especially in places like Bihar and UP and Madhya Pradesh um, and, and uh, you know, in parts of Haryana here, where uh, people are just kind of back to their normal lives. Like they're getting back into their shopping gigs. They're getting, in in Bihar, the schools have opened and in Madhya Pradesh, the schools have opened. You can see kids, uh, you know, cycling to schools and not, basically they're not wearing masks and they feel that the virus has come and gone. Uh, That's the general feeling, you know, where I've been out reporting
2: interesting i wonder if there are differences among the states in the same way that there are differences among the states in the united states whereas you know the attitude of people toward mask wearing is very different in the midwest in the missouri for instance than it is in new york uh, where people are more strict about those things
3: i think i think here like you know in these particular states that i'm talking about uh you know which where there's a lot of a huge amount of rural population which didn't see like the surge that they did in these packed spaces of urban uh, areas like Delhi and Mumbai, uh, people are more relaxed now because they're not seeing people around them fall sick or being taken to the hospitals anymore. So so they're kind of uh, just taking it easy.
1: Uh, this is Bindu. Uh,
3: you also have to remember that the
1: urban hubs in, in India were the places which were the red spots which saw a large number of COVID cases coming in. These places also suffered the maximum losses uh, in terms of lives. Uh, They've suffered the maximum loss of uh, jobs, uh, which which has really hit uh, the people hard. And the same is the uh, case with vaccines. You know, we've we've uh, we've always had a very. We were talking earlier about how uh, vaccine upsurge hasn't vaccine uptake hasn't been very good, but then we've always had a very checkered uh, relationship with the vaccine, a very complicated relationship, whether it has been polio vaccine, whether it's been smallpox, again, same with the uh, adherence to uh, COVID appropriate behavior. So I think education and social differences does matter. And uh, we've adapted to a situation before. I think we'll do it again. So as
4: you are reporting out and about interviewing people on the ground, um, you know, Whitney and I both have a background as journalists, but we're not covering this in the way that you are so intensely. I mean, you've both been wildly prolific um, on this topic in the past year. I would imagine that this is a totally exhausting reporting project. And how do you take care of yourselves and take precautions against COVID and also just sort of pace yourself for this very long, strange story?
1: This is Bindu. So uh, I'd say that this is, uh, at the cost of sounding extremely selfish, uh, this pandemic has re- it's it's a it's a welcome challenge for a health reporter we uh, in in my lifetime i don't hope to see a pandemic like this ever again so uh, this this really is you know it's a culmination of everything that you have learned everything that you know coming together we we've, we've never the world has never seen a situation like this before and to be able to report at a time like this is a fantastic opportunity and uh, uh, so Having said that, uh, you just have the precautions that I would take as a reporter or uh, the precaution that anyone else would take as a, as a human being. You would wash your hand, you would wear your mask, you don't get go into crowded places. You have to remember that the health ministry in Delhi was among the first places to have the largest number of cases in, in that entire building. So they shut down the building, they did a deep clean, they restricted the number of uh, people who were entering Uh, officials who were talking to us would who would meet us would uh, talk to us over the phone you were meeting more people out in the open instead of meeting them in in offices Uh, you were going to meetings where the numbers were restricted so we learned we adapted and we learned a new way of reporting and that that really is the beauty and the challenge of uh, of uh, being a reporter and what better than to see it in the front row, I mean, you know, you are involved with it. You you are personally involved in uh, in the entire pandemic. You you have family which is suffering. You are reporting on it. You have doctors who are friends. You have uh, the government, which is so. I think it's a it, it's the same for everyone. It, there is the precaution that you take is the same precaution that anyone else would be taking.
3: So basically, the lockdown for us did not mean that we also went into lockdown and stopped reporting. And I was one of those reporters in, in the bureau who was kind of just out there reporting uh, because um, I was in Delhi. I was placed there. And uh, the stories took me to all these places starting June uh, when the flight started. And I was in Bihar, I remember. And no sooner that we would be in this centerland, that people would just naturally crowd around you. And I still remember at that point in time that in rural India, people didn't wear masks. So what I was doing was just wearing a mask and trying to be polite about kind of just taking that step back. Although airports were really safe. You know, people were like maintaining distance at that point in time versus now where there's not like even a hair's breadth between people who are queued up at airports. So I thought the airports were more scary than being out there to report, um, uh, you know, versus being out there in the field. So I was wearing my mask. I was trying to maintain my distance. And uh, we were going all over. We were going to hospitals. We were going to places where there were so many people who were infected. We were trying to get into like these groups of people to talk to them about it. I think what really helped me was like wearing a mask and just trying to kind of politely maintain a distance. I think that did it for me.
2: We really appreciate both of you being here to, to talk to us about uh, about your reporting. Uh, we encourage our, our listeners to check out Hasani's coverage in the New York Times and Bindu's work in the Hindu newspaper. Thank you.
4: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you both so much for being here.
2: That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's how other people find this show. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books, links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. And you can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel. We'll provide links to all this stuff in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Be sure and check out our new sponsor, Literati, at literati.com FNF for 25% off your first two orders. If you do that, I can guarantee you happy reading.